we cannot risk defaulting on our debts. America pays its bills. If we send a signal, we lose our AAA gold-plated credit rating. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today is Tuesday, July 26th, and that was Congressman Peter Welch, a Democrat from Vermont. You heard at the top. He was speaking on CNBC. Today, what would it mean if the U.S. lost its AAA credit rating? We go inside a secret room where countries are rated and we ask, how bad is AA plus? But first, David, I have for you today's Planet Money indicator. All right. Today's Planet Money indicator is 2.95. The yield on 10-year treasury bonds, in other words, the interest rate the U.S. government has to pay to borrow money for 10 years, that's 2.95%. This is a very low yield. It's lower than it's been for most of this year. It's very low by long-term historic standards. And what that means is that investors are still really comfortable lending money to the U.S. government. A low interest rate means I'll give you my money even if you're not going to pay me a whole lot of interest. So it means despite all the fuss in Congress, despite everyone wringing their hands about the U.S. might default on its debt, the markets do not seem worried. And, you know, David, through all of the sort of noise we've been hearing out of Washington, you do hear both Democrats and Republicans say they're committed to avoiding a default. So for the purposes of our podcast today, we're going to assume that Democrats and Republicans and financial markets are all right about this. We're going to assume that the U.S. is not going to default on its debt anytime soon. Instead, we're going to look at another question that's come up lately. What happens if the U.S. does pay its debts but gets downgraded by the big rating agencies? But first, to set the stage, we're going to replay a part of a previous podcast. Last year, David, you actually went to Standard & Poor's, one of the big ratings agencies, and they walked you through how they rate countries in, at least in ordinary circumstances. A credit rating is basically a measure of how likely a country is to repay that loan, repay its bond. If you lend a country money by buying one of the government's bonds, how likely are you to get all your money back plus interest? Or on the other side, how likely is it that the country might default? You won't get all that money. So the excerpt we're going to play, it's about eight minutes long. And by the end, you'll know S&P's sort of standard procedure for putting letter grades on countries. By the way, you'll also hear Alex Bloomberg in the tape. And just for context, this was recorded back in May of 2010. It was just after Greece and Spain had been downgraded. Uh, Greece had been downgraded to a double B plus, And Spain had been downgraded one notch to double A from double A plus. At Standard & Poor's, I met Joydeep Mukherjee. He's director of one of their sovereign ratings groups. That's what they call the groups that rate countries, sovereigns. He said the first step in rating a country is getting all this information. They ask countries about their budgets, their imports, exports, their GDP. And of course, if you're worried about default, you need to know how big a country's debt is. Previously on Planet Money. This is the hard part, is that you can't just pick one ratio. There's no magic formula that says, you know, if debt exceeds X percent of whatever then you got to be in this rating or you're going to be here. Uh, because what you find is, you know, rich countries with a high rating, like the United States or some of the European countries, have a lot of debt. Why? Because they have a rich economy. They have a good tax system that generates revenues. And they're, they're borrowing so that they can grow, and they do grow, and then they can pay back the debt. Part of, part of growing is often borrowing to finance yes. the growth. Debt isn't necessarily a sign of weakness. It's a sign of you know, expansion and things like that. If you go to the other end of the scale, you may have a little bit of debt and still default. I mean, the saying, you can drown in a glass of water, you know, or if you're a very good swimmer, you can swim across the Atlantic no matter how deep it is. So that's why you can't look at one indicator 
in isolation and say, this is going to explain everything. And Dave, these guys also have to factor in other completely non-financial things into their thinking, like who's going to win the next election and what's that person's domestic policy going to be? And I don't know, is there going to be a military coup? Yeah, anything could happen. And that is why analysts at Standard & Poor's take an additional radical step. They leave their desks. Any country, we have two analysts who go to the country for that rating. Never send just one person because, you know, you you need to have a second pair of eyes. I think there are people listening to this who would say, just two? Shouldn't you be sending 70 to rate a, a country's government? Well, we're not the IMF. We, we, we don't send a team, you know, of a lot of uh, expert specialists. And, you know, to be fair, uh, what we're looking at is fairly narrow. Can you pay your debt fully and on time? What's your ability and willingness to do so? So we're not necessarily going to be experts on the taxation system in Albania. So, you know, I think two people, this has been our practice. It, it's worked well. So they go over, um, how long do they spend there? If it's a new rating, first time, uh, we could spend up to a week Obviously, you're going to meet with the Ministry of Finance. You meet with the central bank because they have a key role in the economy with things like inflation and exchange rates. Then we go talk to the business people. We'll talk to them. We'll talk to anyone. Sometimes even talk to the media in the countries that... No. Yes. Sometimes, surreptitiously, we even talk to the media in various countries. I love that. So it's a private corporation having an off-the-record conversation with the media. Usually it's the other way around. And it proves to me it's true. The media do control the world. All those conspiracies are right. So all this data, the random private off-the-record musings of journalists, the interviews with top government officials, all the numbers, all that goes into the head of an analyst. And that analyst types up a report, recommends a rating, and then there's the climactic end. There is a meeting in a conference room. And this happens on another floor at Standard & Poor's where they could not take me, but Joy Deep did a kind of reenactment with what he swears is an identical conference room. We walk down this hallway, we come to this room, and uh, we walk inside, and as you can see, if I open the door here, uh, it looks like any conference room anywhere in America, and the key feature here is a telephone, (laughs) and and that's important because uh, the rating committee is international. So a bunch of analysts sit around. Some of them are there on the phone. They're going to talk about this, and then they're going to take a vote. There has to be at least uh, an, well, five is the usual number of voting members. We always want to have an odd number because you don't want to tie. You just, you know, and do the whole thing again. So you, you lock yourself in a conference room. Yes. And then the analysts can make a very brief introduction saying, I recommend this for the following reasons. So, okay. And then the chair of the committee who sits at the front of the table um, says, okay, now we're going to start the question and answer period. Uh, Let's start with this topic. Let's start with political risk. When you've exhausted that topic, the chair will say, okay, let's talk about the government budget or let's talk about inflation. End of the process. Okay, fine. No more questions. Everyone's set. We know as much as we're going to know on this thing. How long does that take? So even if you're doing a, a, a sovereign uh, which uh, is relatively boring, like a Canada, which is rated AAA, you still have to go through all the steps. So two hours is sort of average. And then you have the vote. And say, okay, analyst A, how do you vote? Analyst B, you just go through the list, tally up the votes, and say, okay, the majority voted for this. This is the rating. 
So, Dave, I don't know what I was expecting, but I always think of finance as being very quantitative, you know, spreadsheets, numbers, and formulas. And this strikes me as more of a messy democratic process, like literally a hand vote, like you'd have at a, I don't know, a co-op board or a PTA meeting or something. Right. I mean, this is, uh, it's a matter of opinion, right? This is a judgment call by a bunch of analysts. And that's why you get people out there with different opinions who often get angry at the rating agencies. People like... Bill Gross, the managing director of a company called PIMCO. Now, PIMCO is one of the largest buyers of government bonds out there. They have over a trillion dollars under management, and he has whole teams of people doing essentially what S&P does, evaluating government bonds. And Bill Gross, he took S&P to task this week. He has this online column, and he went on a little bit of a rant, and the rant was about the rating that S&P gave to Spanish debt. He said the rating for Spain is way too high. And here is what he wrote. He wrote, S&P just this past week downgraded Spain one notch to double A from double A plus. Ooh. And he actually wrote this in his column. He wrote, ooh, so tough. And then he went on, here's a country with 20% unemployment, a recent current account deficit of 10% that has defaulted 13 times in the past two centuries. This is the strange thing about the rating agencies. Like, on the one hand, they're just a bunch of analysts offering their opinion. But when they change their opinion, that can have massive consequences. And to explain what these massive consequences are, I have a piece of paper in front of me. It's a prospectus for the Fidelity Investment Grade Bond Fund. You might have money in here right now if you invest with Fidelity. And the investment grade bond fund prospectus says the following. It says it, quote, normally invests at least 80% of the fund's assets in investment grade debt securities. So in other words, before the downgrade of Greek debt, Fidelity could invest in Greek bonds without a problem. But after the downgrade, this fund might have to sell its Greek bonds. And this is not just Fidelity. There are lots and lots of investors who have these kinds of rules where they reference the ratings from these rating agencies, where it matters whether something's investment grade or below investment grade. Pension funds, insurance companies, banks, lots of people who used to loan Greece money. Now it's harder for them because Greece has been lowered to junk status. So the allegation is a downgrade can help seal a country's fate. Joy Deep, the analyst at S&P, he doesn't buy that. He says, we are just holding up a mirror to the world. It's not the rating which caused the problem. The problem was there. The rating, as it changed, will bring the news out to more people. And, you know, we've had this in the world of sovereigns. We had the 1997 Asian crisis where we downgraded some sovereigns. People accused us of this very thing of creating the crisis. In fact, you find most countries that we downgraded, downgraded, were, went down a little, and they stopped there and they recovered. Only one or two countries really went to the bottom and even defaulted. What does that mean? That means that the inherent strength of the entity is more important than what a rating agency says. You know, rating agency downgrades by themselves are not going to cause anyone to default. Is there a big deal when you cross from investment grade to non-investment grade because certain investors are constrained by laws? Yes, Simple answer. Okay. Do you treat that boundary as sort of special in your meetings because of that? It, it, we think deeper and longer and harder about going across that line. So it, it is significant that Greece passed from investment grade to now below investment grade. I, I think that's how the market has interpreted that. You know, Alex, for all the fuss about that downgrade, Standard & Poor's told me they don't expect Greece to default immediately, at least. Greece is now in the double B category. And historically, if you look at double B rated countries, if you look at the next three years, something like just four and a half percent typically end up defaulting. OK, back in the present now, 
end of July 2011. Jacob, yeah, how'd it work out for Greece, David? <laughs> uh, Greece, we now know, is defaulting on its debt. Most people who own Greek bonds, those bonds, they're going to lose something like a fifth of their value. The world has definitely changed in this year or so since we originally recorded this. And we actually were able to talk today to Joy Deep to do a little bit of a, of a follow-up for this. And he said, yes, this is still the basic S&P procedure, especially when things are pretty stable. But he also said in times where there's a lot going on, like, say, now in the U.S., the S&P ratings can be really more of an ongoing process where it's not just two analysts talking to some government people for a few days and going back to the office. The process can stretch over months and it can involve a lot more than two analysts. And and one other thing he said, he said there is always a committee that votes in the end, but sometimes it does have more than five people. The rating agencies, though, as you heard, are a bunch of analysts, among many analysts out there saying what they think. And yet countries get very, very upset when they get downgraded. Reuters last week, for instance, reported that the Obama administration had been on the phone calling up S&P with a lot of questions about its ratings. And we had a question. And, you know, David, it's actually a question that readers always ask, often angrily, when we report on rating agencies downgrades. Readers say, well, you know, the rating agencies put AAA ratings on all these mortgage-backed bonds that turned to junk during the financial crisis. So why should we even listen to them anymore? Why does it matter if the U.S. gets downgraded by Standard & Poor's from AAA to AA plus or AA? I mean, as you heard in the tape, Okay, it is a big deal for countries to drop below the investment grade range because, as you heard, there are a lot of rules and regulations that treat investment grade bonds differently from the stuff below it, the junk bonds, as they're sometimes called. But if the U.S. gets downgraded, it will still be investment grade. You can drop all the way down to triple B minus and still be investment grade. Yeah, David, there are all these notches, right? There's like triple A and double A and pluses and minuses and single A and triple B. Basically, no one is talking about the U.S. getting downgraded to junk. That is not on the table right now. We called up Amitabh Arora, head of asset allocation at Citigroup Global Markets. He and his colleagues had written a pretty thorough paper about what would happen in the case of a U.S. downgrade. And he told us that Look, if the U.S. actually defaults on its debt, okay, that is a big deal. But if we raise the debt ceiling, don't default, and we get downgraded from AAA to AA, he says that scenario is not a big deal. If we got downgraded from AAA to AA, that will not have a very significant effect on markets. He says, for one thing, when Italy and Japan got downgraded from their AAA ratings, it had little or no effect. One reason is that if you scour all the financial documents out there in the world, you don't find a lot of references to AAA. There's nothing in the Basel regulations for banks. There's nothing in most bond funds saying they have to be 80 percent AAA or something like that. He says it's hard to find anything mechanical or automatic that has to happen if you drop a notch and you're no longer AAA. And another thing he points to, you know, if you're worried that, say, a downgrade might trigger a big sell-off of treasury bonds, he says, look at who owns treasury bonds. It's mostly institutional investors, big banks, pension funds, insurance funds. And those places, they've already done their own analysis. Four-fifths of treasuries, if not more, are owned by institutional investors. Uh, most large investors in U.S. treasuries can make their own determination of creditworthiness. So if you're a large foreign investor, you're not relying on the rating agencies necessarily. The rating agencies are one more metric you look at. You know, if they have had concerns, they've had concerns all this time, the actual act of a downgrade doesn't affect them very much. So none of them have to follow rules that say, if this is no longer AAA, we've got to sell it. Right, right. 
And, uh, and w- in fact, what do you think they would do in case of a one-notch downgrade? Very little. Nothing, as a matter of fact. I mean, some people might just look at this headline and say, oh, God, I don't want to own any. But institutional investors generally will not act in that fashion. But it would make for some weird headlines if the U.S. got downgraded. It would basically be the rating agency saying it's safer to lend your money to Microsoft or ExxonMobil or Johnson & Johnson, all of which have AAA ratings, than to lend your money to the U.S. government. Amitabh says, strange headlines aside, in the end, it probably would not make a big difference. The truth is, for big institutional investors, there just are not a lot of alternatives out there to U.S. Treasury bonds. Let us know what you think. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. Or leave us a comment on the blog, npr.org slash money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening. In the filthiest of minds.